You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. Hey everyone, so this episode of Intergenerational Politics was actually recorded uh, about a week and a half ago, but given the impeachment trial, we couldn't release it last week, so we wanted to bring this episode to you today. So enjoy this episode. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, Victor's co-host and an MSNBC legal analyst, as well as the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience as the only woman on the trial team. I'm also known for my pins, and today's pin is um, a duplication of the logo for intergenerational politics. Yes, so the Biden administration is facing multiple simultaneous crises from passing a COVID-19 relief bill to advancing legislation that will help America build back better. Uh, to do that, President Biden must work with the Senate, and fortunately for him, Um, It won't be complete gridlock because Democrats technically control both chambers of Congress, but in the Senate, their control is only because the VP can decide, can cast the deciding 51st vote. That means uh, it will be difficult to build widespread consensus on how much, on on much of what uh, President Biden hopes to pass and Senate rules have become a key to how much can be accomplished. On this episode of Intergenerational Politics, we are joined by someone who knows the ins and outs of the Senate, Adam Gentleson. Adam was the Deputy Chief of Staff to Senator Harry Reid, who joined us on this podcast on January 4th. Um, Adam used his knowledge from that experience to write the book Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Uh, In addition to being an author, Adam currently is the Public Affairs Director at Democracy Forward, a columnist with GQ and frequent opinion writer of very enlightening pieces, as well as a political commentator for MSNBC. Uh, This is going to be a packed episode during which we'll delve deep into uh, the dynamics of the Senate. Uh, By the end of this episode, all generations will feel that they are Senate experts and understand the basic rules that keep the Senate going and sometimes stop it cold as well as how the impeachment trial will proceed and how and when Biden's cabinet and subcabinet gets confirmed. Thank you so much for being with us today, Adam. I've been a big admirer of your commentary and writing uh, for a long time. So thank you. I'm a big fan of yours as well. So it's really great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You said on NPR uh, something about the reality. I'm sort of quoting you. The reality of the situation is that you have to clean the wound before you can heal it. We need as a society to impose clear consequences on folks who perpetrated this kind of behavior. There's no way to move forward unless we address these issues head on and show those who took this action that there are consequences for what they did. Does that include Senators Hawley and Cruz and other enablers as well as um, the president? Yes, I think it should. Um, That was a few weeks ago. I'm I'm saddened to see that it doesn't look like that's the direction we're heading in, Um, but I wish that they would change course and, and, reconsider um, things like expulsion. I mean, look, the House voted yesterday to um, strip Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, and that's that's good. Um, but I, I believe things like expulsion should be on the table here. I think that these members have transgressed a line um, that is unacceptable in a democracy that values the peaceful transfer of power. I think that they clearly 
um, encourage this insurrection. Um, and by not imposing very strict, severe consequences um, that I think should at least include the option of taking very seriously of expulsion, then you're effectively normalizing that this behavior. Um, it will not send the message that we need to send that this is unacceptable and should be excluded and pushed outside the boundaries of, of acceptable behavior in our democracy. So let's talk about the procedural rules in the Senate for the trial that is going to start on February 9th. And that would include, for example, should they and could they subpoena Donald Trump? Um, that's a good question. I'm, I think that this, the general rule of thumb is that they can do anything. I mean, there's a question of can they and there's a question of when of will they. I think that the problem is for most uh, moves like that, you're going to need some degree of Republican support. And so um, without that, I don't think they'll be able to subpoena him. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, I feel like uh, immediately after the riots, there was some indication that Republicans were going to lend some support here. You had uh, reports that Senator Mitch McConnell himself was considering voting to convict Trump um, and was seeking sort of as part of a larger effort to purge him from the party. Um, and I think that unfortunately that that enthusiasm for accountability on the Republican side seems to have dissipated dramatically. And so you had five Republicans, you had only five Republicans vote to, to proceed with the trial in the first place. Um, and the rest of Republicans vote to effectively dismiss the trial. So something like a subpoena is gonna need, uh, a lot of the rules governing impeachment require more than a majority to, to um, go into effect. And I believe that subpoenaing and things like that fall under that category. So unfortunately, you're not gonna be able to do it if you have you know, only five Republicans um, supporting you. As Victor mentioned at the opening, the Senate is narrowly divided right now, 50-50. So if these votes about how to proceed are being cast directly along party lines, um, they're not gonna pass if you need the higher supermajority threshold. What about witnesses other than the president? Um, as you remember, of course, at the first impeachment, there were no witnesses because the Republicans were in control and wouldn't allow witnesses. Uh, and do you think that any of the witnesses or even the documentary evidence, like the movies recording what happened on January 6th, will remind people of the fear they felt on that day and might make a difference in how they vote? I'm hopeful that it will. You know, something interesting happened this, this week where you saw um, the House vote in <coughs> to uh, keep Lynn Cheney in her position in House leadership. She's currently serving as the number three uh, in House leadership. I think what was significant about that was that this was this was essentially a proxy fight between the Trump wing and the sort of establishment Republican wing, because uh, the forces seeking to oust Lynn Cheney from her leadership position were the Trump wing, effectively. And uh, in public, it seemed like Cheney was uh, sort of a, a sitting duck and that she was bound to lose her leadership position. Um, but because they cast this vote as a secret ballot, she retained her position overwhelmingly. Um, so I think that there's some suggestion there that Republicans' uh, feelings in private, at least, uh, acknowledge the need for accountability and the need uh, to sort of uh, decrease the power of the Republic of the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Um, unfortunately, I don't think they're going to be able to cast uh, a secret ballot in, in the impeachment trial. Um, that's another thing where technically the Senate could enter into a secret session um, but and could cast uh, a, a vote in secret. But once again, 
to enter into a into a closed session, the Senate needs a supermajority threshold. So without that fourth, without Republicans being willing to enter that secret threshold, that secret uh, session, they won't be able to do it. So while on the one hand, I think the Cheney situation provides some optimism that maybe there will be a uh, sort of um, reckoning here and that Republicans will do the right thing. Uh, I still think that the public pressure um, from the Trump wing will carry the day. And as powerful as the evidence will be, I think that it's, it's, if I had to bet right now, I would say it's unlikely to sway a large number of Republicans. However, I do think it's important uh, to have that accountability and to put it out in the open and to remind the public of the horrors of that day. Um, so I think that that is an incredibly important thing. I think the act of accountability here is meaningful. It establishes a historical record um, and it shows that the Congress did move to try to hold them accountable. And some, you know, Republicans will have to live with the vote if they choose not to do it. They'll have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And that will be something that's on, on the historical record uh, for the faith uh, when future generations look back and say, what, what happened here? I, I agree with you completely and think that the historical record is an important reason to proceed and to lay out a full case with all the witnesses and all the terror that was in existence uh, during that period of time. But let's move to a broader topic um, that I think your experience will be very helpful for our viewers to understand. Um, and that is Democrats only have a majority because it's a 50-50 split and the vice president therefore casts the deciding vote. Um, but that doesn't mean they win even in a straight party vote. So I, I'm confused. Um, I, I, it actually does mean if it's a straight party vote, they win. So it'd be 51 to 50. Um, and what happens that it took two weeks after the inauguration for power and committee chairmanships to be transferred from the Republicans to the Democrats? Why is it possible for Republicans to maintain the kind of control for two weeks. Yeah, so this is this is a fascinating window into how the Senate works. Um, so the Senate has to organize itself at the beginning of every new session. It's mm -hmm. sort of like feeding a computer a new set of code uh, mm -hmm. or giving something a new set of instructions on, on how to operate. Um, it, it, you know, if it doesn't organize itself anew, the Senate is, is considered to be a, what's called a continuing body. So it just carries over uh, from the previous Senate. So, you know, when the Senate, the new, all the new senators were sworn in on January 3rd, they're sworn in uh, ahead of the inauguration and that's uh, set by the constitution. Right. Um, so they were sworn in on January 3rd, but other than the new people coming into office, nothing else about the Senate changed. The membership of committees didn't change. Mm -hmm. Who ran the committees didn't, none of that automatically changes. It only changes after mm -hmm. the Senate gives itself this new set of instructions on how to run. And that new set of instructions is called an organizing resolution. Um, it's usually the first thing the Senate passes. It's usually non-controversial. Um, and it's, it you know, puts the new members on the new committees, it takes the old members off the old committees. Uh, if the majority's changed hands, it puts new people in charge, uh, et cetera. Um, and it, you know, everything down to, to budget levels and staffing and sort of critical nuts and bolts issues like that. What happened is um, the, the organizing resolution, like every other piece of legislation uh, for the most part that goes before the Senate is technically subject to a filibuster. And so while it never actually came to a filibuster on the floor, Republicans effectively threatened to filibuster it. And McConnell, and, and because it is subject to a filibuster, it requires 60 votes to pass. Um, this is something we could, I discuss in the book um, of how we got to this point 
uh, moving from sort of the silent filibuster of Jimmy Stewart to this, this stealth filibuster where no one actually talks on the floor, but somehow automatically the number of votes you need to pass a bill goes from a simple majority up to 60. And we can, we can get into that, but, but for the sake of this example, just understand that it takes 60 votes to pass in the face of Republican opposition. So because we are, we are going to talk at length about filibuster because that is an important part of your book and we want to cover that. But I just want some more fundamental, broader questions first, which are uh, the next one would be why are confirmation hearings still being delayed? Yes. Uh, particularly Merrick Garland. And I have a specific question after you answer that about Merrick Garland. Yes, yeah, so that's that's connected well in part to the organizing resolution. Um, Republicans were still in control of the Judiciary Committee, which oversees the uh, the um, confirmation hearings of the Attorney General. So uh, Democrats only gained control of that committee uh, a few days ago. Right. So that was you know connected to this ongoing filibuster against the or filibuster threat against the organizing resolution. Democrats only gained control. So we're basically you know had a two week delay to the start of the Senate. Um, in the way that they could really get rolling. There were some hearings that were able to proceed. It sort of works committee by committee, depending on what the level of cooperation is among the members of that committee. Um, but in the Judiciary Committee, uh, the Republicans who controlled it were still putting up a fight uh, and, and were able to delay the confirmation of, of Garland. So when can we expect Garland's um, confirmation hearing to take place? That's a good question. I'm not sure because of the impeachment trial next week. Um, I think that's going okay. to um, delay the schedule a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so I think that, you know, senators are required to, uh, be at the trial. Yes. Um, and this, this question, there's sort of this debate over two tracking where you can sort of, you know, do the trial in the morning and maybe do conduct other business, uh, in the, in the afternoon that gets caught up in other Senate rules that are pretty strict about when committees can meet, um, and allows the minority in a lot of cases to object to committees meeting. Um, so you know, once again, you run up against this issue, which is part of the reason why everything's so gridlocked in the Senate, of when you have an obstructionist minority uh, dead set on sort of throwing sand in the gears against everything the majority wants to do, it makes something as simple as holding a hearing for an attorney general nominee who is almost certainly going to eventually pass by a large vote because he's unquestionably qualified for the job. Um, you know, the opportunity to just throw sand in the gears is irresistible to an obstructionist minority, and that's creating a lot of gridlock. And you know, getting us off to a slow start already in the Senate. Turning off a lot of Americans about how the sausage is made, but could Merrick Garland be appointed as the acting attorney general based on having been Senate confirmed as a judge? I don't, that's a very good question. Um, I don't think so, because I think that you have to be Senate confirmed to the same agency. Um, I'm not a lawyer and I, I'm not. A it does not have to be the same agency because you can transfer a Senate approved person from uh, commerce to justice. And that has happened. Um, okay, so I, learned something. I mean, I, you know, and you're referring to the, the Federal Vacancies Act, yeah. um, which is which is, you know, was a big thing under the Trump administration. Um, so that's actually a very. So I think under that um, understanding, he probably could be appointed. Um, if it came to that, I, I think that probably and then then there's the political question of does he want to be appointed? Right. That you know it's it's dip, it's more difficult as an acting you know to sort of take control and, and start all the staffing things necessary. So I think that you, you make a very good point about the Vacancies Act. Uh, I, I think that's a good backstop to have if Garland if there was further delay or some issue with his nomination um, to know that he could be appointed in that way. 
So what power or influence does McConnell as the former leader have now that he's the minority leader? Well, in a Senate that still is where the filibuster is still a live issue, he has a lot of power because essentially um, if, if there's no cooperation forthcoming on issues, McConnell can effectively wield a veto over uh, most of the legislative items that Biden wants to do. He can't do it on nominations because uh, the threshold for passage there has been lowered by, by two consecutive uh, reforms to Senate rules, one by my former boss, Senator Reid in 2013, and then one by uh, Senator McConnell in 2017 that has now set the threshold for confirming nominees at a simple majority all the way through. So there's no point at the process of nomination and confirmation where a nominee is required to secure more than 50, 51 votes. Um, so McConnell controlling you know, only 50 votes can't stop any, any Biden nominee from being confirmed as long as that nominee maintains all Democrats in support, which so far they have been able to do. And looking at the nominees who remain to be confirmed, you don't see any Democrats raising major objections. So it seems likely that they're all gonna maintain Democratic support barring some new information or, or something that comes out on them. So McConnell can't wield, wield any real power over nominees, especially now that we have the organizing resolution and the committees are going, um, although he did, did you know, affect a, a two-week de two delay there. On legislation, though, the different story where he can really, he can require any piece of legislation to, to achieve 60 votes. And therefore, since you need 10 Republicans, McConnell can, can you know, whip to keep his people in line. Um, and he can deny Democrats the 60 votes they need to pass most major pieces of legislation. So on the legislative front, he wields uh, enormous power still. All right. So maybe this is a good time to talk more in depth about filibuster yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So filibuster is this major element in your book and is one of the kind of inside the beltway rules that most of my generation, as well as those ahead of me, I don't think we completely understand it. And obviously this is your jam. So I guess, can we start with like a one sentence description of what the filibuster is and like what we mean when we talk about that? Yeah, I'm going to give you two what it <laughs> is good. and what it's become. I, I'm, you know, I wish I... I, you write a book about it and, you know, never supposed <laughs> yeah. to do it in a sentence. It's one thing. <laughs> but look, technically a filibuster is any effort to block or delay a piece of Senate business. Um, it can be a, a big speech. And I think when people think about the filibuster, they often think of Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington giving a long speech. Uh, but more often today, there it is not a speech, but rather a procedural uh maneuver that allows any senator to raise the number of votes that are required to pass a bill from the simple majority where it used to exist for most of the Senate's life up to a supermajority of 60 votes. Mm -hmm. And so can you now explain, I guess, the history and I guess the arguments that is meant to, uh, you know, protect the minority? Because I think oftentimes my generation, when we think of the filibuster, we sometimes think, you know, it allows the minority party to uh, debate bills, to uh, to argue about bills. Like, can you talk about that and why that's a common misperception? Yeah. So I think that used to be a reasonable defense of the filibuster. Um, you know, just just a level set here. I think I think that um, it's important to understand that the filibuster was not an original part of the Senate. Um, the framers did not want it. Um, it's, it's, you know, it didn't exist when they uh, created the Senate. So, you know, it's hard to say they would have, they would have opposed it, but the body of evidence suggests that they strongly suggest they would have opposed it um, because they were very clear that they didn't want obstruction to be a major force in the Senate. 
Um, they were very clear that while they wanted the Senate to be thoughtful and deliberative, they wanted debate to remain focused on attempts at persuasion, um, and that when debate got out of hand and started to become purely directed at obstruction, it, could be, it should be time to end that debate, bring the issue at hand up to a vote, vote it up or down on a simple majority, and then move on. Um, and that's different from the House, where the minority never gets the chance to debate. Maybe they get an hour at most on a bill that's brought to the floor, but generally things are you know, brought to the floor, ran through on, on majority rule. So it was a delicate balance. Um, you had to give the minority a role in the process, allow them to debate and make their views heard. But at the same time, you had to balance that out with the need to actually get things done and to make decisions in a relatively timely fashion, um, You know, maybe a few weeks or a month or two, uh, but, but not um, months on end as we have today. Yeah. What's happened today is that um, the filibuster itself has become completely divorced from this idea of debate. Um, and because members don't have to debate to delay a bill, and the reasons for this I get into in the book, but it's, it's really a series of evolutions driven by um, some major characters who sort of were innovative obstructionists, starting with John Calhoun and mm -hmm. uh, the father of the sort of spiritual father of the Confederacy in the 19th century, Richard Russell, who was an aggressive, self-avowed white supremacist senator from Georgia uh, in the 20th century. Um, Lyndon Johnson is involved, uh, and then all the way up to Mitch McConnell in our present day. Um, what they did was that they seized on um, sort of loopholes, basically, in the rules to eventually create a situation where today the filibuster is much easier to wage uh, because you don't actually have to put in the effort of going to the floor and giving a speech. Um, you also don't have to explain yourself because you can, you don't have to ever uh, make a public statement about why you're blocking it. Mm -hmm. But even though it's easier to use, it's also more powerful because instead of just giving a speech to delay a bill, you can actually raise the number of votes that it takes to pass the bill. And this is a much more effective way to block a bill, um, especially in a sort of partisan polarized era like we live in today. Um, if a bill only needed 50 to pass, uh, you could speak and you could delay it, but you probably wouldn't be able to stop it from passing. If you can force a vote, a bill to suddenly need 60 votes to pass mm -hmm. uh, in a Senate where, where that would require 10 Republicans to join over, um, you can effectively prevent it from ever being passed by raising that threshold and then denying Democrats the votes they need to pass it. This is effectively what, what Senator McConnell did to President Obama under his administration. Uh, he started deploying the filibuster. And because there's no speech, because there's no actual debate, um, it's stealthy and you don't really notice it's happening. Um, and this is one of the things that makes it so insidious. What the public sees, they don't see people giving speeches. They don't see sort of a passionate defense of, of minority rights. They don't see a passionate uh, defense of the other side of the argument. All they see is stuff failing um, yeah. and stuff not getting done. And so, you know, the, the stealthy nature of the filibuster today uh, makes it much easier for the minority to block the majority from doing anything. And it makes it harder for the public to understand what's going on. Um, because all they, sit, all they saw under Obama was Obama failing to get things done. Um, and it's very hard to explain to them that actually it's because of this procedural maneuver that allowed them to raise 60 votes was why he wouldn't get anything done. Um, so it's, it's become very insidious. I, I personally favor a more open process where I'm fully in favor of the minority having the right to debate, to make their views heard. I, you, know, you mentioned that in your question. I think those are very important features of the Senate. Um, but I think it should be done in public. And I think that people should be able to see it. And if they, they are blocking the bill, they should explain why um, and have that argument in public. And then, you know, at the end of the day, see if they've persuaded anybody, have a majority vote and see if the bill, the bill passes or fails and then move on to the next issue because we got a lot of stuff to do these days. There are a lot of challenges we face and we need to actually pass, you know, thoughtful policy solutions. For sure. And I think you make really important points there. But just to summarize, so when we talk about the filibuster, we're really talking about the way that 
uh, the cloture rule is kind of done, right? So the rule that allows the end to debate and allows the body to move forward with a vote, would that be in a sense? Yeah, that's right. So I I always, when I was in the Senate explaining this procedure to people, I always felt like it would be a lot easier to understand if they called it closure instead of changing it to cloture, um, <laughs> because that's what it is. It is an effort to right. bring closure to debate. And actually in the early days, they used the words interchangeably and they would often describe it as closure. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to figure out when it's changed. It's really hard to tell, um, just a usage thing. Um, but yes, closure is what the rule is for. It, 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 um, there was a version of it that was included in the original Senate rules, um, and, and it allowed a majority to vote to bring closure um, and impose cloture to a debate. And it's essentially saying, all right, guys, you've, you've been debating for long enough. You, know, you get to that point in an argument, we start repeating the same things over and it's very clear you're not convincing everybody. Right. Like the people around you say, okay, guys, that's enough. Um, it's funny in the original, there were other ways, there are other ways they have trying to wrap things up. There was sort of traditional start talking over senators, sort of like in the Oscars when you bring the music up um, to tell them their time was over, they would open the doors of the chamber as sort of a signal. You know, so there's sort of the polite ways to do it. And then there was like, if none of those worked, you cast a vote, debate is over, time to vote on the bill itself. Mm-hmm. They got rid of that rule um, by mistake, essentially, in 1806, uh, in part because uh, they rarely had to reach for the actual vote itself. It was considered part of Senate, um, uh, the dignity of a senator to sort of take note when people had tired of listening to you uh, and not waste your colleagues' time and to sort of, you know, say your piece and then step down and let, let your colleagues move on. Um, and it wasn't an issue for, for several decades until John Calhoun came along and started using it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened in the, ni- in, in the 20th century was it had become, obstruction had become such an issue that the Senate decided to reimpose a version of this cloture rule. Um, and what they did in 1917 was set it at a supermajority threshold. And the reason being that it was still relatively rare. And they thought that you know when it became obvious that a debate had gotten out of hand, there would always be two thirds of the Senate who could come together on a reasonable basis and say, we've all had our say, let's wrap this up, move on. Um, but it's that, and that's why they call it cloture because it was supposed to say, we're bringing closure to this debate, let's move on. Um, but through a series of other procedural changes over the course of the century, that supermajority standard stopped becoming a tool to end debate and became sort of the de facto threshold for passage in the Senate. Um, this is what McConnell exploited to to massive degree under Obama. So when you see things fail in the Senate, um, and you see them fail because they failed to muster 60 votes, they're not failing because it takes 60 votes to pass things in the Senate, technically. They're failing because it failed to clear that procedural step. Um, before you get to the final vote, you have to end the debate stage, and bills are failing to end that debate stage. They're failing to bring closure to the debate, and therefore, um, they failed on a procedural hurdle. Right. Yeah, that is definitely really helpful. And I think our audience will definitely appreciate that. And, you know, your so your former boss, um, Senator Reid, got a lot of pushback when he did enact the nuclear option, which basically allowed, you know, a simple majority vote to pass certain types of legislation, confirm uh, certain justices and judges. Do you think in hindsight that acting enacting the or that enacting the nuclear option was a wise decision, even with McConnell using it to confirm judge, judges and justices at breakneck speed um, once Trump was appointed? Yeah, I, I, I still do believe it was a wise decision. The mm-hmm. um, reason for that is that I uh, have little doubt in my own mind, uh, and I think the record supports this, that McConnell would have quickly uh, deployed that option himself um, when Republicans were in control. Um, I think that uh, you could argue that Democrats made it easier for him to do so and perhaps accelerated the process by uh, a month or two, but I don't think on balance that that really would have mattered much at all. 
I think um, we, we gained a lot by making the rules change uh, under Obama. Um, at the time we did it in 2013, President Obama was on track to have the fewest uh, federal judges confirmed of any recent president going back to Reagan uh, because of Republican instruction. When we made the change in 2013, it allowed us to push through a wave of judicial confirmations and a confirmation to his cabinet that put him on par with previous presidents. So because we made that change, there are many more Obama justices serving lifetime appointments on the federal bench today than there would have been otherwise. If we hadn't confirmed those people, those would have been vacancies that Trump and McConnell could have filled in addition to what they did. Um, and then you fast forward to 2017, Trump comes into power, Republicans control everything. Uh, if, if I think that the idea that McConnell would have let Democrats filibuster all of his nominees and you know judges are the thing that McConnell cares about more than anything in the world. Um, I think that if you think that McConnell would have let Democrats filibuster all of his precious judges and not gone nuclear himself, um, I, I just don't think that the evidence supports that idea. It may have taken a little while, but once he did it, he would have got you know caught up quickly um, to the pace that he would have had anyway. Um, and what's important to understand is it's it, you know you you don't have to wait for the Supreme Court justice to come along. Um, if I were him, he probably would have done it earlier. Um, for instance, I look at the confirmation of Betsy DeVos as Education Secretary. She cleared a yeah. one vote uh, margin, I think, in 2017. So if the filibuster had still been in place, Democrats would have blocked her. And I think McConnell would have used that opportunity to go nuclear. And when he went nuclear in DeVos, he would have changed the standard for all confirmations, including judicial confirmations, at, which is what we did, mm -hmm. uh, and lowered it to a simple majority threshold so that the way would have been cleared. Um, for the judicial nominations to come. Um, I just think that if you, you know, McConnell cares about judges more than anything in the world, and um, I'm sure he would have found a way to, to change that rule himself. And then we wouldn't have had all these Obama justices that we confirmed in our time. This has been totally fascinating. And there are so many more questions that we wanna ask you. We're hoping that you will agree to come back. We'd love to talk about, you know, should filibuster be eliminated? Or can it be fixed by certain uh, changes to it? And we want to talk about reconciliation, which very few people uh, really understand. And the whole idea of the Senate with two senators from every state, regardless of population, so that Democrats represent 41 million more people than Republicans, but they have the same number of senators. Um, so we want to talk to you about all that. Um, and thank you very much for spending time with us today. It was great to be here. I'd love to come back. Thank you so much. Great. Thank we'll you so arrange much. That. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of Intergenerational Dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.